The year is 1925. People across America are riveted by the Scopes Monkey Trial in Tennessee, a showdown between old-time religion and modern science that was kicked off when a high school teacher violated a state law that forbid the teaching of evolution. In Chicago, Al Capone takes over that city's mob operations and becomes the richest and most famous bootlegger in the country as Americans everywhere defy the prohibition laws that ban alcohol. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Sidney Howard's They Knew What They Wanted, the story of an aging wine grower, the young woman he loves, and the hired hand who comes between them. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. You may not recognize the title they knew what they wanted. The show doesn't get done much anymore. But if you're a fan of Golden Age musicals, you probably know its storyline because Frank Lesser lifted it almost wholesale for his 1956 musical, The Most Happy Fella. The main character in both versions is an Italian immigrant named Tony. He speaks with a heavy, almost cartoonish accent, but his Napa Valley vineyards have made him wealthy during Prohibition, and he's fallen in love with a young waitress named Amy, who once served him in a San Francisco restaurant. She doesn't remember him, but he woos her with romantic letters and the promise of a comfortable life, but also with the photo of his younger and more handsome ranch foreman, Joe. Things get complicated when Amy accepts Tony's marriage proposal, arrives at the ranch, and finds the two of them. Sidney Howard, the playwright who created that storyline, was born in Oakland, California in 1891 into a musical family. His mother was a professional organist and pianist, and his father directed singing societies. But it was literature, theater in particular, that captivated their son. He studied English and classical literature at the University of California, Berkeley, and wrote his thesis on the plays of the 16th century writer John Lilly. He also began writing plays of his own. After graduating in 1915, Howard moved east to attend the playwriting workshop that George Pierce Baker taught at Harvard. That's the same legendary course that helped train George Abbott, Maxwell Anderson, Philip Berry, and Eugene O'Neill. But Howard left Harvard a year or so after he got there to volunteer as an ambulance driver for France during World War II. Later, he became a combat pilot in the French Air Force, and when the U.S. finally entered the war, he transferred to the American Air Force, where he earned two citations for gallantry in action and a silver star. After the war, Howard worked as a journalist, writing stories about labor issues for the New Republic, and he later became literary editor for an early version of Life magazine. But he also kept writing plays. The first one he got produced was called Swords. It was a verse drama set in 14th century Italy. It wasn't well received. It ran just 36 performances. But he did marry its leading lady, an actress named Claire Eames, who was considered one of the major classical actors of the day. 
They divorced eight years later, but their daughter Jennifer would grow up to marry the movie producer Samuel Goldwyn Jr. and to be the mother of actor Tony Goldwyn. But back in the early 20s, Sidney Howard continued to struggle. Two more of the plays he wrote after Swords also flopped. So it made sense that They Knew What They Wanted was reportedly turned down by 16 producers before it was picked up by the Theatre Guild. It was Howard's first play to be set in a contemporary time period, and that seemed to do the trick. They Knew What They Wanted went on to run for 414 performances. It also beat out Eugene O'Neill's Desire Under the Elms and Maxwell Anderson's What Price Glory for that year's Pulitzer. Howard continued writing contemporary plays after that. The Silver Cord, a drama about a woman so insanely possessive of her sons that she tries to ruin their relationships with other women, became one of the most talked about plays of the 1926-27 to season. Then, as happened with so many New York writers, Howard was wooed to Hollywood. He quickly became one of the most successful and highest paid screenwriters in the movie business. In 1931, he won an Oscar for his adaptation of the Sinclair Lewis novel Arrowsmith, which also became that year's best film. He was also a popular figure in Hollywood, and in 1935, he was elected president of the Dramatists Guild. Four years later, Howard won a second Oscar for his adaptation of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. That film's domineering producer, David O. Selznick, hired at least 10 other writers to tinker with Howard's original script. But in the end, it was agreed that 85% of the classic movie that so many of us have seen over the years had been written by Howard. However, by the time of that Oscar ceremony, Howard was dead. He died in a freak accident while working at the farm in Massachusetts that had become his favorite retreat. He was trying to fix his tractor when the tractor jumped forward and crushed him against a wall. He was just 48. The last time the original version of They Knew What They Wanted was performed in New York was back in 1976 in a Phoenix Theater production that earned Tony nominations for both Louise Nettleton as Amy and Barry Bostwick as Joe, but it ran for only 23 performances. Frank Lesser's musical adaptation has fared better. Sidney Howard was an unabashed lefty who voted for the communist candidate over FDR in the 1932 presidential election, and he included some of his politics in his play. He made Joe an outspoken supporter of the labor movement and radical ideas. You're a blooming capitalist, Joe tells Tony at one point in the play. Russia's got the right idea. Lesser left all of that out of his musical and focused solely on the romantic triangle. The Most Happy Fella opened in 1956 and ran for 676 performances. The 40 or so musical numbers that Lesser crammed into his show turned it into a quasi-opera, and over the years it has been performed by opera companies around the country, including by the New York City Opera in 1991 and again in 2006. 
but its most recent major New York revival was a 2014 Encores production with Shuler Hensley as Tony, Cheyenne Jackson as Joe, and Laura Bonanti as the young woman, lesser rechristened Rosabella. I was lucky enough to see that production, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I found myself more moved by the play when I read it. It seemed ahead of its time, especially in the way it allows Amy to have what we now call agency about what she wants to do with her life, and without making her pay for it. All three of the main characters, and they knew what they wanted, get some version of what they wanted. But in the 1940 movie version that starred Carol Lombard and Charles Lawton, the ending was changed to make Amy atone for the sin of having sex outside marriage. It made me wonder why Howard, whose premature death was greatly grieved by his contemporaries, isn't better remembered today. So, once again, I called up Thomas Hishak, a professor of theater arts at Flagler University in St. Augustine, Florida, and the author of over 30 books on theater, including 100 Greatest American Plays, to talk about this early but now largely forgotten Pulitzer winner. Hi, Tom. Welcome back. Thank you. I know that you're interested in older plays, so I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this one. Um, They knew what they wanted. What's your history with the play? I first uh, knew about it because of the musical version. Uh, There was, uh, in 1956, uh, Frank Lesser wrote uh, the music, the lyrics, and adapted the play into the musical The Most Happy Fella, And it's a fairly popular musical. It's not done a lot, but it was a success in its time. And so that's the first time I heard the story. But then I later did go back and read the original play from 1924, and uh, and I could see what he did to change it. Not terribly much. Um, But I also, my first experience with the play, I knew Sidney Howard's other plays, some of his other plays, and I really like them. He's, He's a very solid writer in the 20s and 30s. He's a little ahead of his time with some of the subject matter. Mm. Um, But frankly, uh, of the ones I like of his, um, uh, They Knew What They Wanted is not one of the finest, uh, and I think it's considered one of the more unfavorable or uh, controversial choices for the Pulitzer. Uh, considering what was going on that year. Exactly, because there was tough competition that year. You've got yet another Eugene O'Neill played, um, and you've got Maxwell Anderson. You've you've got some real serious contenders. So what do you think the Pulitzer board was thinking? Well, one or two of them actually was interviewed after they gave the award because there were a lot of complaints and he kind of explained what was going on. They, the most popular play that season, in terms of getting up great reviews, was uh, Maxwell Anderson and uh, Lawrence Stallings' World War I drama, What Price Glory. It's one of the best plays uh, written about World War I, American plays. It had a lot of profanity in it. It was very realistic, and at the same time, great characters. The profanity kept it from winning the award. Uh. The, the, the committee was very conservative, and they had never heard uh, 
much, you know, colorful language on the stage before. So as much as it was admired, uh, they were afraid to give it the award. Uh, there is a funny story uh, about what price glory. After an act of, you know, God damn this and God damn that and bastard this and bastard this, lady in the front section with her long gown and tiara, after listening to this, she drops her program and she says, oh, goodness, I dropped my goddamn program, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just perfect. The other play that really should have won, but it also was very upsetting, and that was Eugene O'Neill's Desire Under the Elms. O'Neill had won a couple of times already, and I think they they you know didn't feel like he had to. But the great irony is uh, Desire Under the Elms, and they knew what they wanted, have sort of the same plot. An older husband, a beautiful young wife who has an affair with a younger person, a younger guy, and uh, in the case of O'Neill, it was more Greek by actually she has has an affair with her stepson. So you get all that kind of... Phaedra stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so in some ways, that was a more disturbing play, and they knew what they wanted. Uh, the young wife has an affair with a, you know, the farmhand, and, uh, and she doesn't really love him, but uh, she ends up, happy ending, she ends up with the older husband. Uh, such does not happen in Desire Under the Elms. Uh, it ends in a bloodbath. But if history was going to look back, they would say that was the best play of the season, Desire Under the Elms. And it is done. A difficult play, but it is done. No one does. They knew what they wanted. But, but in its defense... Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to uh, stand up for yeah, it a little please. bit. It does something, uh, I think, that was sort of radical for its time in that Amy, the the woman who sleeps with the younger man, uh, mm-hmm. she doesn't suffer for her sin. She doesn't have to pay for her sin at the no. end. Um, and that seems a little uh, radical for the time. I know that... In the movie version, her ending is a little more ambiguous uh, because they do want to make her uh, right. pay for what she's done. Yeah. And my guess is uh, the movie, which stars Charles Lawton as the older husband and Carol Lombard uh, in a serious role, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was made after the, uh, the Hollywood Code, uh, where you really couldn't have someone sin and not pay in some way pay for it uh, but the theater never had any kind of code like that and i will give uh sydney howard credit it is very believable what happens you know why she'd be drawn to this guy and uh and at the end not too hard to believe why she would be drawn to this older man who is her husband and it is a happy ending and a lot of the critics called it a comedy maybe in the term that nobody was dead at the end it was a comedy <laughs> right. but it was pretty serious going and uh probably a little you know uh scandalous uh that this woman like you said falls you know from grace but she kind of redeems herself by her love for uh, Tony, her husband, and, and that is perhaps her redemption, you know, her uh, to say that, you know, she doesn't have to be struck by lightning because she sinned, that uh, that she redeems herself in another way. Probably pretty corny to us today, but at the time, probably had an impact. Hmm. I'm also struck 
by um, Howard's incorporation of his leftist politics into the play. This is just a few years after the Russian Revolution. And I think at some point, Joe says something like, I think the Russian way is right. And that also struck me as radical. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, leftist feeling in uh, the 30s mostly, but you see it in the 20s too, the prosperous 20s. By the Depression, a lot of that surfaces because, well, the system isn't working and maybe there's something to be said for the Russian system. Um, but Joe is, I wouldn't say he's a labor union, but he does have, like you say, he does have some leftist ideas and he's not real shy about it. Sidney Howard himself had leftist ideas, but I wouldn't put any of his plays down as political plays. They're about people and some serious topics. They knew what they wanted, by the way, was his first hit. And that's all even more surprising why he won the Pulitzer, because usually the Pulitzer, they'll give it to somebody who's been around for a while and hasn't won. But in his case, it was his first hit. But The Silver Cord, two years later, is a devastating drama about a mother who's smothering her two sons, so much so that she drives one of the son's wives to suicide. Um, The late Christopher Bean, which is the 30s, 32, is about an artist after he's dead and uh, what happens to his paintings and who did he really love. Uh, These are all really good plays. And of course, Sidney Howard's greatest contribution wasn't in the theater. It was the script for Gone with the Wind. Many hands were on that, but they say a good 80 to 90% of that script was Sidney Howard. And if you want to look at an example of uh, adapting a huge novel into a workable screenplay, that is one of the great genius works of, of you know Hollywood. Um, he had done adaptations before. I really like, um, in 1932, he adapted uh, a novel, uh, Dodsworth. Uh, into a play and then into a very successful movie later on. So he's a he's a good writer. I, I think they knew what they wanted is is an example of a playwright younger and uh, and, and still finding his voice, but not as stage worthy as I think some of his other plays. Why don't we know his name? Um, more now, because as you say, he wrote some substantial work. He was recognized at his time. But when I looked at doing this play, his name was just not one I knew. Yeah, because none of his plays are revived, uh, except, you know, a few occasions here and there, regional theater. None of them have returned to Broadway even though a lot of them were successful in the 20s and 30s. And if you don't, you know, get produced in the theater, uh, you can't rely on literature. You can be a great novelist, and the people will still look at your novel from 1924 and admire it. But in theater, if your plays aren't done, you very quickly disappear. It's, It's a sad case. And there's a lot of American playwrights from the 20s and 30s who wrote excellent plays, and they were successful, but they're not the kind of plays audiences want to see today. They tend to be very well constructed. They're solidly written, but because the issues that they talk about have been handled so many times since then. Taken uh, 1926, he wrote a, a play called Ned McCobb's Daughter, 
and uh, the main character is going to get an abortion, and what are they going to do about it? And you just didn't talk about that much in 24. Well, now we have so many plays that do deal with that, that why would you go back and do this 1924 play uh, as solid as it is? Um, so fame or notoriety in the theater comes down to are you still being produced uh, more so than how many awards you won and and uh, what critics at the time said. Although, I'm going to give it to the Pulitzer board on this. This might not have been his best play, and it might not be today a remembered play, but they marked him as a person of promise and talent yes. with this award, and, uh -huh. and they were right. Yeah, they did. They, they picked the right person. Hmm. Well, thanks for talking uh, with us uh, about it and giving it just a few minutes more uh, in the sunlight. And uh, thanks for helping us to do that. Yeah, thank you for bringing some attention to these plays, these, you know, these great plays of the 20s and 30s that have fallen by the wayside, but they were very important in their day, and this was one of them. So, yeah, always, always a joy to talk about that. Great, thanks. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.